a Podcast One production. The election is called, promises are made, the election is won, and the winners celebrate how good they feel about themselves. And then it begins. You wanted to be in charge, so do something about it. And according to political legend, any new government has to hit the ground running. The first 100 days is vital, apparently. I'm Adam Peacock, and on this episode of Peacock Politics, I want to find out what actually happens in those first 100 days. Why are they so important? Does it set a tone for how a government will actually govern? And does the electorate actually get what it was promised? My guest is Arthur Sinodinus, a man who has one of the more impressive CVs in Australian politics, serving as Chief of Staff to John Howard during his PM years, and then as a Senator in his own right from 2011 for the Liberal Party. He's been there for six election victories. Arthur, that's a lot of first 100 days. Uh, thanks, Adam, and thanks for the opportunity to be on the program. Look, different governments at different stages of their life treat the 100 days differently. Mm. But, for example, if we look at the government that's just been returned, the Morrison government, um, I think Scott Morrison is trying to treat it as a first-term government rather than a third-term government. And so his version of hitting the ground running was to, first of all, as they all do, determine a ministry, and that can take a, a bit of time. But normally you want to get that out within a couple of weeks of becoming the government because apart from anything else, you've got a lot of your colleagues sitting at the end of the phone, and I've been in that situation, wondering if the call will come. Waiting for a promotion, that, essentially. That, that, that's right. And if you remember, there's a famous episode of um, Yes Minister where Jim Hacker is sitting by the phone and uh, getting the shivers every time it rings and jumping up and down and getting very jumpy. And uh, and in the end, he, he stops responding to the phone and that's the actual call from the Prime Minister saying you've got a job. But that's an important part of the process, getting the ministry done. Another important part of the process, and often the two are interrelated, is a Prime Minister can take the opportunity to change departments around, what's called the machinery of government. And often this can be fashioned to reflect the personnel available uh, and vice versa. But for example, uh, after one victory in 2016, Malcolm Turnbull created a Minister for Defence Industry because of all the money we were spending on defence. How do we capitalise on that to get industry opportunities here in Australia going? So created a separate portfolio just for that. So you take the opportunity to change ministries around. This time around, Scott Morrison's taken the opportunity to rebadge Human Services Department as Services Australia. He wants to base that on Services New South Wales, which is a, a great model if you can get that going. Apart from when you get fines all the time. Anyway. Well, but, but the great thing, down. Adam, is these days when you get the fines, it's so much easier to deal with it. They've, oh. they've almost made it a pleasure to get a fine and well, go in there. Yeah, and, I wouldn't go that far because I'm sailing close to the wind with my points. But I get your point. I get your point. Just to streamline services. And, and so the, basically the government comes in and when you say Scott Morrison is treating 2019, this yes. version of the new government, like a, yeah. like a new, a fresh, yeah. Yeah. something that started again. So previous ones, like I mentioned in the intro, you were involved yeah. in the Howard years. Yeah. That was just a you know continuation rolling Well, when on. governments were being returned they were followed by reshuffles. You didn't necessarily always have wholesale changes to the machinery of government, although I remember 2014 is when we decided to bring together um, Centrelink, the Child Support Agency, Medicare, into one body which became the Department of Human Services. And the whole idea there was all these groups do a lot of, or or organisations do a lot of processing, so would there be uh, efficiencies and economies in the back office in bringing them together? So that it's an opportunity to do machinery of government, but then you've also 
as you alluded to in your introduction, you try and set the tone in the first 100 days by the actions you take. For example, this time around, Scott Morrison brought the senior department heads together and uh, lay down the law, if you like, that we're here to work for the Australian people. Your job is a bit of congestion busting in government to make sure things get done, things aren't blocked. Um, so, you know, promote that can-do attitude. And, and that's important to set a tone for people and set a direction. And, and you do that in your first 100 days. The other thing you do is if there are election commitments you can implement right away, mm. just get on with it. Um, there are some commitments that have to wait till your first budget, but there are other commitments. If you can implement them right away, do so to show the public we heard, we promised, now we're delivering. We'll get to that. I just want to strip it back to yeah. day one. So you wake yeah. up and you, you're feeling all good because you like the Liberal Party, um, the coalition, we're at the, the big hotel in Sydney and all at, patting at the each other. Yeah, yeah. the Sofitel. Yep. Carrying on and in, yeah. enjoying the, the, um, the victory as, as you do when you have a victory because it doesn't well, happen well, every time. Well, the first thing you've got to do is make sure you don't drink too much on the Saturday <laughs> night because you're going to be up on the, on the Sunday and a couple of things will happen is, for example, the head of the Prime Minister's Department yeah. uh, and perhaps with Treasury in tow at that stage will come in and say, Prime Minister, if you've been returned, here is um, the blue book. I always get the colours mixed up, but there's a blue book if you're returned and a red book if it's the other side. But mm. let's say you're returned and it's a blue book. Um, here is a briefing on the state of the economy, the state of the books, um, so this is Sunday morning. Sunday, afternoon. it can be as early as Sunday morning. Um, here are the urgent issues that confront the government as you come back into office. Um, here is another book, which is our manual on how to implement all the commitments you made in the campaign, because while the campaign's been going on, the uh, public service have been feverishly adding up all the promises that each side has made and then working out, well, if this side wins, how are we going to implement these commitments that they've made? And so you get all this material. The public service also take the opportunity of this. And so the head of the Prime Minister's Department who does this, brings this together, is he or she may decide there are certain themes that they think the government should run now that they're returned, consistent with what was said in the election campaign. So they take the opportunity to brief you on those, to say, well, for example, Prime Minister, this term we've got to put more focus on Indigenous policy because closing the gap you know, needs a, a rev up or whatever. And that partly comes into the briefing they give you on urgent issues. So you get hit with all this on the Sunday, and probably at this stage, uh, particularly if you're a new Prime Minister, you're thinking, wow, jeepers creepers, there's quite a bit to this job. Um, and then you've got to start thinking, well, okay, this is the briefing, here are the personnel, how do I fit the personnel to the issues or the departments we're talking about? So that it's an iterative process which starts, but you then have to make phone calls or you receive phone calls from overseas leaders, yeah. particularly if you're a new leader, people ring up, you know, Trump will ring up saying, congratulations, I always knew you were going to win, good on you, you're back, or whatever. And you uh, take that call, you don't blank it because you're too busy. You, you no, wanna... no, 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 you, you, know, you, you take that call and then you make sure afterwards people know you've had the calls, whether it's uh, President Trump, uh, Prime Minister May, or now it would be Prime Minister Johnson from the UK, Emmanuel Macron, you go Angela Merkel, you go through the list. Um, a lot of the Asian leaders would ring. Mm. Um, a lot of your South Pacific colleagues, probably if they haven't rung you, you ring them first or whatever. Um, but the point is, 
everybody's just saying, hi, congratulations, want to work with you. So a, a prime minister comes in and all of a sudden they're juggling, implement their program, get to know all these people. Um, it may be there's a summit around the corner, so you've got to be briefed on that mm. and go to that summit very quickly. Um, so there's plenty on. There's plenty on. So because the election campaign is so brutal. I mean, everyone's running on fumes by the end of it because you're campaigning so yeah, hard to, yeah, yeah. to get yourself back in or in full stop. Yeah. When does everyone have a little breather or there's no um, chance to have a breather because you've got to hit the ground running? Look, it, it, it's hard. It's hard because um, once you've got the ministers in place, you then have to get them working on what's called the um, Governor General's speech to the parliament, which is going to set out your program. Because then you've got to work out when will the parliament return? What's the first pieces of legislation we might want to put to the parliament in this term? There has to be a ceremonial opening of parliament on the Monday and then the, the parliament, um, or it can be a Tuesday, uh, is then open for business and the Governor-General does that. This year, there were two things that had to be done. First of all, on the Monday, the Governor-General, the new one, had to be sworn in. So we had a nice function in, in my home, the Senate, Mm -hmm. uh, and we squeezed everybody in there as we normally do. And we have the people from the House of Reps come over and diplomats and others up in the audience there and, and people. And he got sworn in on the Monday. And then Tuesday morning, we had the swearing in of the parliament. And that's when the new senators, the new members get sworn in. Um, and then the first legislation gets done. So the governor general speech has to be uh, prepared for the opening of Parliament, and that's when the government's program is laid out. What are some of the functional matters that have to be taken into consideration? You know, like you mentioned before about um, getting across the, the priorities, if you like, but I'd, I'd imagine staffing, even things like offices, and well, it, well, it all takes time to kind of sort itself well, out. Well, once ministers are appointed, they have to appoint staff. So there tends to be a committee, a government staff committee, which some people call the Star Chamber because they think it's, it's a bit of an interrogation place, but it's not like that. But the point is there's a government staff committee with senior people, including from the PM's office, who actually come together to appoint at least the skeleton staff for each office uh, and then fill it out over time. And each minister will get a letter with their allocation of uh, of staff, senior advisors, advisors, media advisors. Like who they are or how many you get. How many you get. Yep. And then you, as a minister, you might consult the PMO, or the PM's office or others, but you go out and you find the relevant people. They may be people who've already worked in government or you may have people you want to bring in because they bring complementary skills to the government. Um, and they then go back to the government staff committee to get ticked to make sure... Uh, it's like a hygiene check that these people uh, have got nothing, you know, in their background that could be a problem. Yep. These days, social media is a big issue. Mm. You get this in election campaigns with the vetting of candidates. It's the same with people going into ministerial offices because once they're in there, you don't want them uh, to have um, their social media on mm. because it can cause a bit of confusion and uh, with the day job. Um and so, yeah, there's all that issue around staffing that has to be done and has to be done quickly. What I'm getting at is it's the logistical processes yeah. of this huge industry, if you like, of government get in the way of actually doing what you want to do and that's implement what you promised well, in the well, election. Well, you've got to walk and chew gum at the same time. Mm. So what we've done, I think, this time around is we brought in uh, a veteran of the Liberal Party, a guy called Tony Nutt, he used to work with me, and he got the job of helping to coordinate the staffing. 
and uh, he had support from the PM's office and his role was essentially to make sure that process ran smoothly while the Chief of Staff to the Prime Minister and the other senior people in the office were focused on, as you noted, the other elements of the agenda that have to be done. In government, if you can do it, you've got to be like a duck on a pond. You've got to look like you're just gliding on the surface while underneath everything is flapping because as a government, you've got to always look like you're in control. One of the things that was good about John Howard as a leader going into meetings or any situation is even if he was tense behind the scenes, he tried not to show it. He always tried to show he was in command and that gave people some confidence because particularly when you're the head of government, people want to feel that the senior person knows what they're doing a set of direction and is not sort of uh, panicking or worrying. As opposed to Paul Keating who used to just wear his heart in his sleeve and come out and say some big words and make everyone think about well, what well, kind I, of spray he's given. Well, but I actually think that Paul was quite calculated in what he did with that to have an effect because mm. he thought about doing this. He was a great actor. <laughs> I'm trying a great to get, thespian. If you've got his number, by the way, can you tell him to pick it up? Because I'm trying to get him on this to, <laughs> to have a chat about politics. Anyway, um, have you got any good anecdotes about the first 100 days period where things have gone especially well and, and things have been seamless? And flip side, not so much the ones that you're involved in, maybe ones that you've noticed where it's gone, ooh, this, this hasn't started very well. Um I think the ones that have gone well in, in the past have always been the ones where there was more planning beforehand. Like if you're in opposition, like in the run-up to the 96 election, um, the then opposition under Howard had a pretty clear agenda bringing to, to government. And so that um, that seemed to go quite well, that there was a clear agenda. What didn't go as well was... Um, and this hadn't really been talked about beforehand because it wasn't a political issue in terms of the public so much, is a decision was taken that some senior bureaucrats had to be moved on because they were seen as too close to the previous government because there's often a perception when you're in opposition and you've been there for a long time that the bureaucracy tends to become used to who they've got and therefore seen as potentially too close to who they've got. So Labor whether people it was or liberal people. All yeah. this sort of stuff. So whether it's right or wrong, um, and that was something that, um, affected relationships with the public service for a while. But John Howard got the message and over time we fixed it and people like me who are ex-public servants, I think, helped that process because we understood the public service. But that's an example of something which, um, an administrative change, which if, it, if the system are surprised by it, it can sort of cause them to go, oh, what's going on here? What, what's the message that's being sent here? So that was a, a case of something that um, was probably a bit unanticipated and that's an issue. I think when changes were made in 2004 to bring those um, three areas together like Centrelink, Medicare and the rest, I think that surprised a lot of people at the time. Uh, that it went so well that you could do it? No, first of all, that it was announced. It wasn't really something that had been canvassed in the election, but then it was sort of announced and it became almost a centrepiece of the government's post-election early period. In the end, I thought it went okay, but again, it was a question of... So the point I'm making is things go well when they're scripted and whatever, but then sometimes things happen that you haven't anticipated, and that's when the system, which is all geared up to moving along certain railway lines, all of a sudden the system goes, oh, what's happening here? It's like when you want to go shopping and get the shopping done for all the kids and you get a call from the mother-in-law or something and it 
it derails you by half an hour and then that sets everything back. I, I get what you're saying in a different kind but of way. But you've got to be nice because it's a mother-in-law and you could be in other sorts of trouble. Exactly. There's always a next time as well. Yeah. There's always a next time. Um, has there been any cases, that, I'm guessing that governments and, and politicians on both sides of politics before an election are too smart for this, but every, every occasion in Australian history that the to use a, an example of um, a dog chasing a car, that the dog finally catches up to the car but then thinks, what do I do now? Well, I, I think, and I wasn't around for it, it was slightly before my time, but I think when the Whitlam government got into power, um, they had a certain program and they'd been developing this program, or Goff had for a long time, and so when they got into power, it was all about delivering the program and, and, and there were two issues. One is he had a very big cabinet. He had a cabinet of over, um, I think the whole of his ministry was his cabinet, which would have been close to 30 people, right? And so the problem was um, it wasn't a really great vehicle for decision-making. Mm. And then the other thing that happened is all of a sudden Goff gets there after all this effort, 23 years of labour in opposition, they've got this great program on access uh, uh, and availability of government services and all this other stuff going on, and the world economy starts turning, and you've got oil shocks, and you all of a sudden you've got stagflation, and yeah, the rivers of gold of money are, are drying up, and Gough kept expanding things, and so the whole thing became a shamozzle. With the transition of power or the continuation of power, I'm, I'm intrigued about the the 2019 election. Yeah. So expectations, even though inside the coalition they were expecting a good result on the evening, and I watched you on the ABC oh, coverage, thanks. and you were uh, you were pretty happy with things as time was going on, and fair enough too. But well, I tried not to gloat. <laughs> that must be a difficult thing in itself. But do you have some kind of inkling or meetings before? to say, okay, the, should things go well on this night, this is how we're going to set up the first 100 days, if you like, well, or well, you, you can't do it until is, you get to it. Is some people are superstitious, so they don't like doing that, like thinking about the transition because they think, oh, you know, that's bad luck. Other people, are, for example, Houston in the run-up to the 93 election, he had a transition to government team and they were working out all the things they were going to do when they got in. Because oh, boy because he thought he was facing the unlosable election, right? Mm. And then, of course, it all turned to custard. And uh, a bit like this election, in a way, uh, the way this turned out, which was totally unexpected to what seemed to be in store for us. Yeah, so some people do transition. Others have intuitively got an idea of how it's going to look, but they don't like to focus on that too much because it's like they're taking the election for granted. They're counting their chickens before they hatch. And that didn't happen this time? Um, well, you see, it was the government mm. coming back f to, for re-election. So in a sense, it had things in place. It had its election commitments. It wasn't in the same boat as the opposition. I don't know whether the opposition had much work on transition. I assume they had some work on transition. Certainly, I think the public service thought there was a change of government in the wings because they had plans to set up a group in the ministerial wing of Parliament House to facilitate the new ministers being able to you know, have their suites allocated quickly and get on with the government, the whole process of government. Um, but, of course, that, that didn't happen. 
Does everyone climb over each other to get the best office, by the way, when a government is returned or a new government comes oh, in? There, there, is there that kind of thing going on? There's lobbying, but the PM's office and others and the Department of Parliamentary Services and whoever it is, the senior public servants in the space, they're the sort of pecking order to this. Yeah. And also there are logistical things that come into it. Like, for example, there are some offices which have all these wires and lines to particular departments. And it's a bit of an expense to just rip everything out every time. So sometimes you just sort of say, well, this is an office that's connected to Treasury. It's better if you come in as the Assistant Treasurer and have that office rather. And if you're a minister, you'll be sensible about that rather than you know, have the government incur the extra expense. It's good to know that there's a huge outbreak of common sense in Canberra. There, it, it, does, it, it is there. It happens every so often. <laughs> What's it like being in opposition for the first 100 days? Uh well, I think this 100 days would be tough for Labor because um, there was this general expectation that uh, they would win and based on the public polls and it appears on some of their own internal polling, which is another question. But what would happen for them in opposition is, uh, apart from the psychological dealing with dashed expectations, is they then have to regroup and think about the leadership. They have to think about who gets which shadow portfolio, they wait to see how the government allocates portfolios and then they try and work out, well, what are the best matchups from our point of view? Uh, who are the weak links in the government lineup? Uh, who do we target? So it's um, like an AFL game. You're wondering who to tag, basically. Yeah, who to tag. Uh, and you're thinking in question time, we're going to focus on X or Y because they look a bit weak and, and it's a bit like the wildebeest out on the plane and the lions having a look and working out where are the stragglers. Mm. And who can we take down? And then by taking someone down, how does that destabilise the government, unnerve the government? Because a lot of it is psychological warfare. Overall, and speaking of psychological warfare, and I wouldn't call it warfare, but psychologically, when does the opposition and indeed the government who has been either returned or voted in start campaigning? Is it pretty well, much look, the day after days, the election? Everybody says that, although it takes a while to sort of recover your breath and implement, as you were alluding to before, all this machinery of government and everything else. But the reality in modern times is um, it's a continuous campaign. And what is particularly dangerous these days is that a poll, not a opinion poll, but the actual election poll, may be a snapshot of how people feel at a particular time, but it's not necessarily the result of cumulative experience. You get what I mean? Yep. And, and this increasingly is the trend, and if that is the case, um, it means that events close to or in proximity to an election can have an outcome disproportionate maybe to their overall importance. The other thing that's happened this election is it's clear that once the coalition stopped bickering among themselves and started to behave more like adults, that underlying issues that were seen as strengths of the government, like economic management or national security, came to the fore. The other thing that happened is this election, there was more focus on Bill Shorten as the opposition leader who looked like he was about to become prime minister and therefore more focus and scrutiny on his behaviour. And for five and a half years, he'd largely been number two in the preferred PM stakes. And this suggested people hadn't really warmed to him. 
And what happened in the election campaign is that that reservation got reinforced for whatever reason. And you can posit a number of reasons, but the point is that got reinforced and that was a powerful factor that influenced the election outcome as well. Does that become a part of the first 100 days, a continuation of that and, well, and looking well, at those in, weaknesses? In, in, and in this case now, um, Bill's moved on. You've got a new person there, Albo. So the challenge for the coalition now is to work out, well, okay, how, um, how do we fill in the picture about this guy and try and define him? And that starts straight away in, in these first line? 100 days? Yeah, yeah. It can be dangerous. It can, there can be a backlash because often when there's a new leader, the public say, uh, we want to take a good look at this person. Uh, and they may not necessarily absorb an attack. Uh, on the other hand, no one likes to leave anything to chance, particularly in this sort of instant media age. So, yeah, there'd be a lot of work on trying to define him. So in Albo's case, they would be trying to say, oh, look, he's always been on the left of the Labor Party, therefore he can never convincingly move to the centre because he'll lose his authenticity as a politician. And if he's not authentic as a politician, the public won't respond to him. And as the opposition to whoever that person is, you'll um, pick apart that the best way you can. With because each side does it, they they yeah, try and define each other. Exactly. We mentioned the the psychological pressure on opposition, which in this case, after the twenty nineteen election, is the, the Labor Party. But what about the coalition? The the psychological pressure of of winning the unwinnable election and now having to do something about it is is that in existence? Well, what happens first? I think that's happened this time around is having won an election that. A lot of people outside thought we were going to lose. I don't think Morrison himself thought we were going to lose it based on my conversations with him over the last six months. But um, first of all, there was a bit of euphoria, like, gee, we're actually here, <laughs> pinching ourselves a bit, like we've actually won. Uh, and, and then the second thing was, well, okay, well, now we've got to get on with it. Now, And some people said, but hang on, you didn't expect to win, so what's your agenda? But the answer to that is, well, we laid out our agenda in the budget. And the first item of business was the income tax stuff. So let's get on with that. But having been given another three years and Scott Morrison not being under challenge because the rule that we now have in force is a, a prime minister elected, as it were, by the public, doesn't get challenged during that term. It's up to the public then to throw him or her out. Mm. Um, I think that's given him a, an authority, which means that he can um, canvas new issues. And he started talking about other stuff he wants to do over and above what we had at the election without mugging the public because, you know, you, you, you want to do things consistent with the spirit of your mandate, not just the letter of your mandate. But I think there's a feeling of euphoria which then says, gee, we've got all these opportunities and possibilities now that we didn't think we'd have. What about then following on from that? You you get into power and you, you've made these promises in the lead up to the election. Obviously, they've been costed out by some very intelligent mathematicians and people from Treasury, but you actually get in and then someone turns around, I don't know if this happens, someone turns around and goes, hey, guess what? You can't actually afford that too well. You're going to have to amend that and that looks bad the, in the public's the, eyes. The best thing to do then is to come clean and say, this is the base on which we thought we could do this. Uh, we've now been advised we can't do it that way, but to meet the same objective or to show we weren't just doing this to con you, we're going to do X or Y. You, you've got to show that... It's best to fess up hmm. and then find a way to deliver the spirit of what you were talking about. Does that happen often? Look, um, often in the context of uh, putting stuff together for a budget, because you'll then get the more up-to-date costings, you may suddenly realise, well, actually, this is going to cost more than we thought, or there's some unknown implication. But my, my point remains, 
what you need to do in those circumstances is just say, well, look, this has happened and this is how we're going to deal with it, as opposed to try and obfuscate or say, no, no, nothing to see here, move on. Because that, that just gets you into trouble and it makes the public even more cynical. Honesty. Honesty through our politics. That's what we want. When in doubt. Be honest. Be honest. It's yeah. the best policy. With the actual, getting back to the actual running of the country and yeah. making Australia prosperous and pushing it forward. The real issues, yeah. The real issues. Yeah. So what about getting legislation through, the ideas that you've promised to the Australian people yeah. in an election campaign? How quickly can that conceivably well, happen? Well, what every government does is to argue it's got a mandate. It put these election promises to the electorate. They were endorsed by the government winning the election. And then you say the House of Reps and the Senate, easier in the House of Reps because you would have a majority in the House of Reps as the government. Uh, we've got to pass this through. The Senate is more problematic because that's elected on a, a more of a proportional basis. Um, and it's half an election each. And half an election, election so it's yeah. staggered. Um, but this time around, uh, we need um, about four votes in the Senate to get stuff through. In the previous one, we had to try and get, I think, nine out of 11. So four from outside your own party. So yeah, cross benches, bench. so as they call you. The yeah. One Nation people, the Centre Alliance people, which is the old Nick Xenophon party, Jackie Lambie, until he leaves the Senate, Corey Bernardi. So take your choice. But in this parliament, I think it'll be a bit easier to pass stuff in the Senate than in the previous one. Uh, Matthias Cormann, as the negotiator and the finance minister, did a pretty good job with nine out of 11. But uh, I think uh, our job will be a bit easier this time around. Does that lobbying or, you know, it getting starts in the, from day one? St- yeah, the, so, that for Sunday? example, <laughs> um, it can. The Prime Minister doesn't necessarily start ringing on the Sunday, but pretty early on, uh, he'll be in touch with the crossbench just to say, hi, I'm here. G'day, How mate. How are you going? There you go. To, oh, Hope things are well. That was a wonderful dress you were wearing how the other the kids, day. And yeah. How the kids, yeah, that's right. And then, you know, you establish that ongoing relationship or, or reignite that relationship. Uh, and then, for example, this time around, we wanted assistance to get the tax cuts through. And in the end, Labor agreed in the Senate to pass them, but for a long time they were saying they'd pass with amendments and we were forced to then talk to the crossbench and... Uh, see if we could get right. a better deal from them. So with back to the, the 100 days, so the first time you get into Parliament after the 2019 election was about two months after, was yeah. it? Yeah. yeah, two yeah. months after. So you mentioned before about um, your, your priorities. So do you want your big ticket item that you – or your, your big ticket items that you, well, you sold to the electorate? Were, and they had a time imperative on them as well because we wanted people to be able to quickly – um, claim their, their tax refund. So we wanted to get that one up. And it was a big centrepiece of the campaign, obviously, and one of the main differentiators between us and Labor. So we wanted that up quickly. We wanted that passed quickly and get that money out the door flowing through the economy. So traditionally, is that what you do? You, you want your, your big thing that you sold to be first or Where second possible, on the list? Yes, and yeah. be able to then go out to the public and say, see, hmm. this is what we're going to do and we've delivered it. You can trust us. Is... Overall, after the 100 days is done, is, is three years enough time to do what you want to do? It's a good question. If you're in opposition, you don't want longer than three years because you want to have a go at the government as soon as you can. There's an argument for making it four years. I think five years is too long. Um, there's an argument for four years in the sense of um, with three years, you get in, you f- spend the first year setting everything up, you've got one year to govern, and then the third year, there's a countdown to the election. It would make sense to be a bit longer, but... Um, Again, 
you run into technicalities like if the House of Reps is four years, are the senators going to be eight years? Because mm. at the moment it's three years for the reps, six years for the Senate. Well, you're a senator. Would you cop eight years? Um, well, there'd be some of my colleagues who'd say, oh, that's pretty good, eight years uh, job security as opposed to less, but you'd have to ask yourself whether the public would think that was a good idea. Mm. Um, and so there's been debate over the years as to whether you shorten the Senate term to four years if you were to extend the term for the House of Reps to four years. Either way, there will always be a first 100 days. But overall, is the first 100 days a key factor or just a neat-sounding catchphrase that has about as much to do with the Australian economy and our way of life as a share price of a Hungarian pharmaceutical oh, company? <laughs> no, I, I think it, it's funny. Uh, this was an expression that I think came out of the US, and I think it was the Kennedy era talking about the first 100 days and getting things done. And what it was meant to connote is a government that hits the ground and gets on with things. And I think that concept is still relevant. Government that gets in, doesn't slack around, doesn't suddenly decide, oh, we're going to have a holiday now, we've won and we're off. Just got to put in the basis of government and get on with it. And and often what you do in the first 100 days can set the tone for an administration uh, and how you mean to, to go on and operate. Um, I remember Reagan, it may not have been his first 100 days, but very early on in his uh, presidency, he had a confrontation with the air traffic controllers. Mm. And he fired them all, which caused a bit of consternation at first. But the point is, he made the point that he's in control, not any one particular group. Yeah. Well, there was no it sends air. a message. <laughs> it sends a message that it's going to be hard to fly anywhere <laughs> with Ronald Reagan in a mood like that. Um, Arthur, thank you very much for joining us. And um, we're at the end of the 100 days pretty much after the 2019 election. I won't ask you how it's gone from a coalition point of view because you're a politician. You're going to tell me it's gone fantastically well. So um, I'll assume that. And thank you for your time and um, best of luck of uh, whatever comes in the future. No, thanks, Adam. And thanks for what you're doing because it helps educate people on politics and that's important. Cheers, mate. Peacock Politics was presented by me, Adam Peacock, and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Liv Proud, sound production by Darcy Thompson, theme music composed by Matthew Dwyer, executive producer Jennifer Goggin. To hear more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au or search Peacock Politics on Apple Podcasts.